you can uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. That's where we are, continuing our study of this gospel. Are you ready for a deep dive this morning? <laughs> I have to apologize in advance because I don't like to bounce around that much in Scripture, but I'm going to bounce around quite a bit today. So just to warn you, there's a lot of text, a lot of preparation to get into the Olivet Discourse. So kind of be ready. Either have your fingers ready or just listen. Either way. Let me pray. Father, we just ask you to bless our study of the word this morning. We know there's wonderful, deep truths here that Jesus felt we needed to have. So we ask you to bless as we try to understand and grasp the totality of the gospel message as it moves throughout scripture, Lord. And we ask for your aid in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we started a couple weeks ago looking at the, this final teaching portion of Matthew's gospel. So there's six major sections where Jesus is teaching in Matthew, and this is the last. Significantly, this one deals with the last things, what we call the end times, the end of the world as we know it, and the ushering in of a new age. That's either the most vain, feckless hope of all time, or it's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen, because Jesus says so. So we're inevitably required this morning to grasp this, to really think about the sweep of biblical revelation as it relates to history and the end of history. God has left his mark all through the history of the world and told us repeatedly in advance things that are going to happen. Many of those things did happen, and, but there are still things to happen. So we're trying to grasp all that. The Bible says that history is going somewhere. It's not just, we're not just flailing around. There's actually a plan in the works. Most people don't give it that much thought, honestly. Some people try to guide history. We live in a time where that's going on in really interesting ways. Every new idea, usually a crazy idea, in our time is referred to as being on the right side of History. Have you heard that? Have you heard people talk about that? They, they, if you don't agree with them, you're on the wrong side of history. If you agree with them, you're on the right side of history. That, and what they're saying is history's going to this place and we're taking you there. You need to trust us to take you there. That's the idea. And it usually means, um, it's usually referring to some really weird, uh, twisted or destructive social experiment going on within the culture that we have to all embrace because that's our inevitable future. That's where history is going. That's what they're telling us. And you, boy, you sure don't want to get stuck in the past, do you? You don't want to be one of those people. You're not with it. You're against progress. And this kind of thinking, it assumes inevitable progress, which we're supposed to accept even though what looks like it's it looks more to me like it's inevitable that this is a civilization in decline because we're following the same track that has happened in many civilizations. They, they kind of go to a certain peak and then they start to decline and the social thing starts breaking up and the, the stuff that's supposed to be really cool and with it today is the same thing that happens in every culture that breaks down. So I'm not exactly sure this, uh, we're on the right side of history, the direction that we're going. Anyway, while puny men make their plans for the future our future, making plans for us, God has ordained everything that has and will come to pass. And he has revealed his great plan in the Bible. So we who know him should not fear, but have hope in the inevitable triumph of justice and righteousness in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
That's where we should be. So we've looked at Matthew 24, 1 through 14 um, a couple weeks ago where Jesus described what he calls birth pangs as the new age emerges under Messiah's rule. He warns that many sorrows will come upon the world. There will be many false prophets. There will be false messiahs. They will arise and believers will endure unparalleled persecution. I think currently there's more Christian persecution, I mean people being killed for the faith right now than probably any time in history. Um, But it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse than that. All of the human rights groups agree that Christianity is by far the most persecuted religion in the world, all over. Um, That's that's going on today. But he's talking about something even worse, unparalleled persecution. But in the end, as verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's what Jesus says. So then starting at verse 15, which is our text for today, he speaks to those who will inhabit the future. But we're not going to get to verse 15 for a while because I'm going to run you all around. So what happens in the future is rooted in the past. Not accidentally, it's all based on promises. The promises of God that puts boundaries on history. In other words, history has to totally cohere and move forward in the direction that God has ordained it already to happen. So humans invent all kinds of ideas and concepts and directions and cultures and religious philosophies and customs and immoralities, but God controls all of history. He's over it, and it will come to the conclusion that he has ordained for it. So his plan prevails, it always prevails, and his plan is built on promises. So, there are covenant promises made in the Bible, and they really started with the man named Abraham, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. They were not only made to Abraham, but to his specific descendants through the line of Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson. And these promises cannot be revoked, and they cannot be overthrown. They are going to happen. And the Abrahamic covenant is the key to everything else that unfolds in the Bible. I often call it the engine that drives the biblical story. Everything is an outflow of the Abrahamic covenant that happens after Genesis chapter 12. So um, let's quickly review just the elements of that covenant. You can look at that if you want to or just listen, but one of the most important promises made to Abraham in order to understand the future is the promise of land. In Genesis 12:1, it says, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, if you jump real quick to chapter 15, before we finish out, uh, we'll come back to chapter 12, but in Genesis chapter 15, that land is described in great detail. The, the words aren't familiar to us, but it's what we call the holy land or the promised land today. Genesis 15, 18, this is when the covenant was sealed with Abraham that, um, uh, I won't go into all the detail, but God made a very clear, explicit, visual covenant with him that would be unshakable and unchanging. And it says in Genesis 15, 18, on the day the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Those people, where they live, that's the land where he's talking about. And of course, those are the people when Joshua came in to conquer the land uh, that, that, that God had given them into their hand after they came up out of Egypt and all of that. So that's the promised land as we know it. Actually, larger The promise is to land larger than um, Solomon almost reached its borders of what God had promised, but even he never did, so all the way. So 
It's going to be completed someday because God promised it to him. So God says he gives it to your descendants and that makes it forever and that makes it the Holy Land. So the other promises in chapter 12 are as clear as they can be. He says, I will make you a great nation, which God did. I will bless you personally, which God did. I will make your name great. There's probably no name greater in the history of the world other than maybe Jesus than, than Abraham because um, you have a, about a billion Muslims that honor Abraham. You have all the Jews that honor Abraham and every Christian country and people honor Abraham. So um, you can't, that's just about everybody. There's not a whole lot of people outside of that. Um, I will make your name great and so you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. That's a really interesting subject. And in you, here's the, here's the final promise, and this is what makes the Bible not a tribal book. Saying, well, this is just a Jewish book. Not from the very beginning, it's not just a Jewish book. This covenant promise made to Abraham, he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God's plan always, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 12, is to bless all peoples. And if you go around the world today, and I've been in some pretty distant places, You'll find Christians there and blessed by the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, worshiping him. So this final universal blessing comes from Abraham's descendant, Jesus. That's why Matthew's gospel begins, a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because he's the fulfillment of all of these promises. That fulfillment of blessing to all peoples does not change the forever nature of the promises of a land and a great nation filled with Abraham's descendants. Universal blessing and the exaltation of Israel as a great nation in a specific land, they go together. One does not nullify the other. They're both eternal promises. So all the texts in the Bible that describe the rule of the Messiah, what will come at Christ's return, make it very clear that Messiah will rule from Jerusalem and Israel will be the leading nation of the world. That is consistent throughout the entire scripture. I'm just going to give you one example. Here's a jump again. Isaiah chapter 60. I'm just going to start reading it. This is is a promise God is making to Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Wow, those are, that's pretty good. And then down in verse 10 it says, foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you and in my favor I've had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and those who despised you will bow themselves to the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. 
You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day nor for brightness will the moon give you light but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set nor will your moon wane for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. It's pretty clear and wonderful, isn't it? They will possess the land forever. So Israel has this glorious future based on God's promises, and that future will be preceded by what Jesus calls birth pangs, these global trials and difficulties and suffering unlike anything that's ever happened before. Birth pangs, sorrow before the joy. And in our text today, starting at verse 15 of 24, Jesus makes specific reference, um, a specific reference that ties what he's saying to the prophetic plan that's set forth in the Old Testament. So we're going to read verse 15, then we're going to walk that back again to the Old Testament. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So there's a warning. Flee when you see the abomination of desolation. Okay, what is that? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, What did Jesus say, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet? That's where you find out about the abomination of desolation, right? So he's pointing us to Daniel. So you can turn to Daniel chapter 9 if you'd wish. Um, The abomination of desolation is part of the famous 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. See, 70 weeks, what is that all about? We've talked about it before. This is the amazing, it's one of the most amazing prophetic portions in all of scripture because we can tie it to real things pretty easily. But it needs to be understood. So we talked about it when we were in Matthew 21, Daniel chapter 9. And the day Jesus presented himself as Israel's Messiah, uh, what we call the triumphal entry when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem and people were singing Hosanna, son of David. And the Pharisees said, don't let people call you that. That's a messianic thing. And he said, hey, if they don't say it, the stones are going to cry out, right? That was that scene. So Daniel predicted that day to the very day. He predicted that happening to the very day. Another reason that only Jesus can be the Messiah. Like last time we talked about how Jesus can only be the Messiah because he was born in Bethlehem and very few people in the world were born in Bethlehem. It's always been a tiny little hamlet but the Messiah is going to come from there. Micah said, this is another one like that. Only one person showed up on the day claiming to be the Messiah the day that Daniel said, uh, that was told anyway by an angel that the Messiah would come. So it has to be Jesus, right? He keeps fulfilling all of these very specific prophecies. So it's amazing that a prophet predicted that more than 500 years before it happened. But that's 
That's not all Daniel predicted. So you have to understand how unique the Daniel 9 prophecy is, how important it is, and how even in the Bible it's presented in a very unique way. You know, prophets usually have like a dream or, or a vision or God speaks to them in a very clear way and so they have God's words and they repeat God's words. Usually it's something like that. But Daniel received this prophecy directly from the angel Gabriel, which doesn't happen very often. Gabriel's the same guy that hundreds of years later is gonna show up, talk to a young girl named Mary and tell her she's gonna have the savior of the world. So Gabriel comes in answer to Daniel's prayer. So the whole first part, most of Daniel chapter nine is this incredible prayer of Daniel, praying for his people, praying a prayer of repentance on behalf of his people. And he's been reading Jeremiah and he's reading Jeremiah and he says, hey, you know, the captivity, he's in Babylon, right? So this captivity is gonna come to an end pretty soon. And he starts praying. He starts praying. He puts on sackcloth and he seeks God to whom he appeals as the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. But he knows Israel hasn't loved God or kept the covenant or the commandments. So it's a prayer of repentance, seeking mercy for his people, pleading because of the desolation of Jerusalem, which is a a ruin because the Babylonians destroyed it. And he says in verse eight of Daniel nine, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And verse 11, indeed all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us. And down in verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name, For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. That is a great prayer. Model your prayers on Daniel. Very godly man. Notice how focused he is on Jerusalem and the temple, the sanctuary, he calls it. That's what his prayer is about. And that's what the answer to his prayer is about. It's very important. So the answer, this message that Gabriel, the angel, is dispatched while he's praying and shows up while he's still praying, the answer is about the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple and Daniel's people. And the angel talks about 70 sevens, verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So the word weeks is just the word seven in Hebrew. It can mean weeks or it can mean just the... the, the number seven, but they represent years. All Bible scholars agree with that. Seventy sevens of years. So seven times 70 years. And by the end of the 70 sevens, amazing things will have been accomplished. Verse 24, to finish transgression, Israel will no longer turn away from God. To make an end of sin, the time of just unbounded, rampant sin will be over. To make atonement for iniquity, clearly a reference to Christ's atoning sacrifice. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that's what we just read is going to come with Messiah. No more idolatry, no more apostasy, 
righteousness reigning upon the earth, to seal up vision and prophecy, it'll all be fulfilled, there won't be need for more, to anoint the most holy place, that has to be a reference to the temple, and it's got to be the millennial temple, which Ezekiel describes in like nine whole chapters just describing this future glorious temple in the millennium. So, when the 70 weeks are done, Christ will be on his throne and righteousness will fill the earth. Now, the prophecy from the angel Gabriel actually gives the starting point of the 77s, and it comes from the decree to build Jerusalem, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks or sevens and 62 weeks or sevens, and it will be built again, plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So he says, point A to point B, from a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, seven sevens, and 62 sevens, that's 69 sevens altogether. The first seven sevens, 49 years, probably is the time it took to rebuild Jerusalem, plaza, and moat. Then 62 more sevens, years, Messiah comes. Well, the decree was made in 445 BC. It's in Nehemiah chapter one by a Persian king named Artaxerxes, okay? So you mark off 483 years from the day of that decree and the formulation's a little bit complicated, but it's really clear. You come to the very day Jesus rode the Nazareth on a donkey. Jesus of Nazareth rode a donkey into Jerusalem while people cried out, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." That was the to that day, and he was the only one that showed up on that day. So you can measure it. It's amazing, actually. What does Gabriel say then? Verse twenty-six. Then. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. What? Messiah is supposed to reign forever. So this is one of two major indications we have in the Old Testament that Messiah dies. One is Isaiah 53 and the other one is here. Cut off means killed almost always in the Old Testament. So that happened. How long after the triumphal entry did that happen? Well, he showed up on Sunday and they killed him on Friday. I mean... A few days. Then, he says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. So he's saying Jerusalem will be destroyed. That happened in A.D. 70. A Roman army completely destroyed the city. Even against the commands of their general, they went wild and burned and destroyed the temple. Slaughtered the inhabitants and sold the survivors into slavery. And right there in the middle of verse 26, you see this gap. There is a prince who is to come. So his people destroyed Jerusalem, but it wasn't him. There's one to come. Future. His, his people do that, but he's future. Then we have a jump. He says, even to the end. So now he's taking us to the end. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. So suddenly we're at the end, and the last seven years are still, that was only 69 sevens, right? We still got seven, one more set of sevens. And that's gonna happen at the, at the end, at the end. So remember, this prophecy is not about all of history, it's about Jerusalem and the relationship of the Jewish people, God's covenant people, to the holy city. And all those years after 70 A.D., there was no Jewish nation and Jerusalem was not under the, their control and it was not even in view that it would be under their control. And we call this 
We call this time, we call it the church age, of the time of global evangelism, where Jesus said, you know, take the gospel to the world, and then the end will come. But um, Jesus actually describes this gap. Now, at, at, when we live right here, it's been like 1,900 years, right? In Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, in Luke 21, 24, Jesus describes the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and he says... They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what Jesus has a name for this gap between that 69 sevens and this extra seven and he calls it the times of the Gentiles. There's gonna be this long period of time when Gentiles are gonna be in control of Jerusalem. So that's the gap between Messiah's coming to Jerusalem and the final seven years of the current age. The prince who is to come is a figure that, well, the Bible calls him the man of lawlessness or antichrist. So notice now the people, well, the prince, notice what he does, the prince who is to come. He makes a covenant with Israel. We're in verse 27 now. For how long? For one week. One seven, seven years. Verse 27, it's all perfectly laid out there. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There's your, set, there's your 70th week, your, seven, your last set of seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Now we're getting to the abominations of desolation. He makes a covenant for peace, but he breaks it halfway through. He ends sacrifice and turns against Israel viciously and commits abominations. Now, earlier in the service, I read Zechariah chapter 14. That's actually describing his war against Israel and his conquest of Jerusalem, his uh, slaughtering the people there. So he does all of these horrible things. Now this gets really interesting, and I know I'm getting technical, but Daniel chapter 11 is a description, a prophetic view of Israel's future, mostly about those 400 years of silence between the last prophet and the coming of Jesus. So it's the time before Jesus, and there's no biblical record being written. But God actually wrote it in advance in Daniel chapter 11. So it chronicles in detail the horrible place Israel was in. After Alexander the Great um, conquered everything, and he died, then everything was broken up between his generals, and the Seleucids ran what was the Persian Empire, and the Ptolemies ran Egypt. So Cleopatra, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't, she was a Greek, you know, descendant of Alexander's people. So um, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were fighting, and Israel was right in the middle, so they're always fighting over Israel. And, that, and it tells that whole story in quite a bit of detail. Particular focus in Daniel 11, verse 31, um, that section there, describes an anti-Semitic monster, a Hitler-like um, man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Seleucid ruler. And it tells us a key component of his assault on the Jews. This happened in 168 B.C. And Daniel says in verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. There's the words. So when Jesus talked about Daniel and the abomination of desolation, those are the same words. That's it. That's Jesus' phrase. But this has already happened. 
That's already happened. Antiochus was 150 years or more before Jesus. And Jesus is talking about the future. So it's something like that that's going to happen in the future, right? So Antiochus was horrible. He had a pig slaughtered on the altar in the temple to, to desecrate it, and he slaughtered the people. He actually chose to attack the Jews on the Sabbath, knowing that serious Jews would not run away because they wouldn't violate the Sabbath, and he killed many, many thousands. It's an incredible history. But what's amazing is that Daniel 11 very precisely lines up with all known history until you get to verse 35 of Daniel chapter 11. And then it, starts, it talks about the king of the south and the king of the north, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and they're fighting. And then it gets down to verse 35, and it just it, it keeps going about the king, but it's completely unrecognizable. It's, it, it's never happened. Well, it's going to happen. That, that part's future. There's the gap again there. In fact, it suggests in verse 35 there and verse 36 that this is the end. Verse 35 refers to the end time. So that's that final seven years. So what follows is the coming of the Antichrist. So verse 36 of Daniel 11, it says, Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor the god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. So he's going to present himself as God, a god, and worship the god of fortresses, and he's going to build this idol thing. So in the book of Revelation, which uses much more imagery than Daniel, Daniel's pretty straight, he just kind of tells it. This Antichrist is just called the beast. And in Daniel chapter 12, um, I mean, Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry, it describes a very vivid imagery. Now, it's very vision-like. But the imagery has Satan as a dragon trying to overthrow God's people and destroy the Jews and the Messiah. So Israel is represented in uh, Revelation chapter 12 as, as a woman with a crown that has 12 um, s- stars on her head. So she's obviously Israel and she's pursued by the dragon and she flees into the wilderness uh, where God protects her. Guess how long he protects her for in Revelation chapter 12? 1260 days. Three and a half years. There it is again. It fits right in with that halfway thing. So it all kind of belongs together. Revelation chapter 13, the beast actually shows up, and it says in verse 2, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and the fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who was like the beast and who was able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. 42 months, I love it. Three and a half years. That was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So it's clearly the same guy that's in the latter part of Daniel chapter 11. Same language is used. Notice he acts for three and a half years. There's the middle of the week Daniel talks about, or the angel tells Daniel. Halfway through the seven years, he breaks his covenant with Israel. Now, 
we can go to Matthew 24. It's almost time to leave, huh? (laughs) Not quite yet. So in Matthew, Jesus is speaking to the generation of Jews who are going to face the terrible wrath of the beast. So verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, see, Daniel described his nature and what he's, he's going to make this thing, and Revelation describes him in the same terms, his arrogance, his proclaiming, proclaiming, proclaiming himself as God. So Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is something very much like what Antiochus Epiphanes did, um, desecrate the temple, he's, this, this beast person, this antichrist, is going to present himself as God in God's temple. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So he's saying, run, you know. When, that, when it looks like that's starting to happen, don't stay in the city, Run. Now, you remember there were two questions that started this whole Olivet Discourse in chapter 24. That he, the disciples were marveling about the beautiful stones and the incredible thing, and Jesus said, none of these stones will remain upon the other. They'll all be torn down. Remember that? And he told them the temple that they marveled at would be destroyed. They said, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the, the, end of the age? So it's a two-fold question, and it launches into a very full answer, and that's what this whole thing we're studying is. So the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, making the beginning of the times of the Gentiles over the holy city. But what Daniel was talking about was future from there, because Jesus also points in Matthew 24 to the future. So the beast is going to desecrate the temple. Possibly, it, it might even be a temple he helps build. You know, there's no temple there now. The Dome of the Rock is sitting over there. That's a Muslim place, and a Jew can't even go up there without a a war starting. So something's going to happen historically that's going to arrange for the Jews to be allowed to build a temple on the Temple Mount again. And I know there's all kinds of talk about that. But he might even help them build that. But then he breaks this covenant with them, and he will make himself God there. But when he reveals himself as God, he turns against the Jews. So Jesus' advice here applies to that situation, the final attempt of Satan to destroy God's people, something he's always done throughout history. Who's been more persecuted than the Jews down through history, you know? I mean, it's always, Satan's always wanted to gobble them up. So whether it's Antiochus Epiphanes or Russian pogroms or uh, Hitler or whatever, there's always something going on. Even today, you know, the one group you're allowed to really hate are the Jews. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Even on college campuses, you know, the whole anti- Israel thing going on. So Jesus' advice here applies to the end. Verse 17, whoever is on the housetop, housetop must not go down to get things out that are in his house. Don't stop. It's sort of like when your house was burning down, Saul. You guys just had to like flee, right? So you didn't have a whole lot of time to collect things. Oh, what about this? Oh, I better go get those, those uh, papers there, right? You, you just got to get out, he says. Verse 18, whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on Sabbath, verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So he's saying run for your lives. That's where we get the expression great tribulation to describe the end of the age. So clearly Jesus' language makes it unique, it's, there's been a lot of tribulation down through the ages, right? 
Many people down through the ages have had horrible experiences, endured brutal conquest by merciless enemies, slavery, mass death. That's gone on many times down throughout history. But it's never been global. This is going to be global. There will be no safe places. You will not only have an evil, murderous, global government, you know, like Nazis on steroids kind of a thing, but this is the time God unleashes his judgments upon the world that the world deserves. So all the global plagues, devastations, and judgments described in the book of Revelation, especially chapter 16, that's the great tribulation. It's all part of that. In fact, Revelation chapter 16 ends, verse 18, with this. There was a, after many horrible plagues, it says there was a great earthquake such as had never been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because the plague was extremely severe. It's so bad, Jesus says in verse 22 of Matthew 24, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's good news. (laughs) So the great tribulation might be just a little bit shorter than three and a half years, just for the sake of the believers suffering there. Okay, so the final question. If all of that stuff was going on, would you notice? Would you have to like, like go outside and see or call somebody up and say, hey, are there 100 pound hailstones falling on the sky? Was the, was the greatest earthquake that ever happened in the, did that, did, I, th- I thought I heard something. No, it's going to be really clear, right? So it's going to be obvious. That's why Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. See, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead if possible even the elect, even God's chosen Behold, I've told you in advance. So he's saying, listen, this stuff's going to happen. If people come and say they're a prophet, or they say that they're Messiah, or they know where the Messiah is, and it's not super obvious, it's not true. So if you have to go find them, or go seek them out, or read their book, or go to a lecture, or something like that, that's not it. That's not it. He says, verse 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I grew up in the Midwest, so lightning was one of our favorite spectator sports. I mean, we just loved lightning. We'd go sit on our porch and watch lightning storms. California, it's pretty far and few between. But we had major lightning. And it's hard to miss giant bolts of lightning that shoot from one end of the sky to the other. You, you don't miss that. That's the way this coming of the Son of Man, Christ, will be when he comes again. And then it says, wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. It's going to be uh, pretty obvious. So you can't miss the second coming. Everybody's going to see it and experience it. So let's make some practical applications here. What does all this mean for me today? Well, obviously, don't chase after false messiahs. That's a good one. Two, go, God is going to make everything right. God is going to make everything right. The world will not always be this way. So you don't have to worry about that. He's going to fix it. We can't fix it. We can do good things, but we can't fix it. Third, God is a promise keeper. Even if it takes 
thousands of years. You know, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus. That's almost 4,000 years ago, and God's making him promises, and those promises are being reaffirmed and kept all throughout Scripture. His plan is being unfurled all throughout history. It's going on, and God's going to keep that promise. Did I promise that guy land 4,000 years ago? They'll be in it. His people will be in it. God's a promise keeper. Even if it takes thousands of years to fulfill those promises, he's going to do it. Mainly, though, I think we should take away from this the realization that this world is temporary. This isn't all there is or all there ever will be. Corruption and sin will dominate our world until Jesus comes. That's what's going to happen. That doesn't mean don't oppose evil, but it does mean don't look for utopia. It will not come at the hands of men. The problem with many people is that they do look for utopia. And where the politics can get really extreme when that starts to happen. Utopians are always frustrated because wicked human beings never get it right. So they want to tell us, they want to control everything to make us get it right. That's what they're committed to. That's what communism tried to do in the Soviet Union and in China. They only killed a few hundred million people, but um, they need more and more control. China today is this massive surveillance state. In fact, this week, just this week, they made the head of China, they gave him the same title that Mao Zedong had, which he's never had before. Nobody's ever had it since Chairman Mao died. Just got it this week which gives him absolute authority over everything in China. So they've got hundreds of thousands of Muslims in concentration camps in China. There's massive surveillance state. They're going to control everybody. Everybody gets a grade, you know, a social grade. You can get on a train or fly on a plane only if you have a certain score. And they control a billion people they're controlling. Control, control, control. That's what utopians do. But there will be no utopias in this world until Jesus comes. So don't seek them. Just seek to serve the God who's really there. That's our calling. Micah Micah said it best, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what you're supposed to do. And let him have the future. Just trust him with the future. He's, He's going to make it all come out exactly as he wants it to. Let's pray. Lord, The world and all of history is in your hands. The great unfolding of history reveals the tragedy of turning away from you, but also the magnitude of your redeeming love and power. You, gracious King, have called us out of darkness into your light. So let us shine for you by our holy lives and our love. Use us as you will. And help us to trust in your perfect plan. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen.